one of the events that uh, I remember happening in my childhood was something that took place in the Pacific Northwest in the year 1980. It was the eruption of Mount St. Helens. I'm sure many of you remember that. You know what's so fascinating about the eruption of Mount St. Helens is that the consequences of that volcanic eruption literally was experienced throughout the entire world. The ash cloud that was propelled into the sky literally traveled the world before it all settled. That volcanic eruption destroyed thousands of acres of forest. It destroyed uh, homes, cabins, retreat centers, and it claimed over 50 lives. It was a catastrophic event, and it was one that I'll, I'll never forget. Uh, studying, talking about in schools and school at the time, and I know many of you will always remember as well. The, the, the volcanic eruption that day was so powerful that literally Mount St. Helens lost over a thousand feet of its peak. I brought a photo with me this morning to uh, show maybe some of you who weren't alive or uh, maybe you were too young to remember the, the eruption. You see on the left there, Mount St. Helens before the volcanic eruption, then you see it on the right afterward, you see that the mountain was decimated by the power of that volcanic eruption. And here's what's so fascinating as you study what happened that day. It, it was not a surprise to experts. You know, what happened that day that resulted in the catastrophic damage to the mountain and everything that surrounded it, that, that literally had consequences that circled the globe. You know, what happened that day was not a surprise because there, there had been a series of small earthquakes beneath Mount St. Helens for some time. Geologists were studying and monitoring those small earthquakes. In fact, there was a gentleman there not far from the mountain itself who was tracking some of these things. And on the day of, of the large earthquake that sparked the volcanic eruption, he was actually taking readings and, and, and radioed in just before the landslide overtook him and actually claimed his life. You see, there had been beneath the surface a series of earthquakes a series of movements hidden, of course, to the human eye, but detectable by those who were studying it. So that the volcanic eruption that happened in May of 1980 was not a complete and a total shock. Now it was to many of us who weren't tracking it, but it was not a surprise to everyone because beneath the surface of that volcano, there had been a long series of small earthquakes that eventually resulted in one giant volcanic eruption. You know, there are situations like that in life, certainly in terms of our uh, geology, where, where you see things happening beneath the surface that later manifest themselves above the surface. And you know, there are also things that happen in life, where in our lives, in our relationships, in our families, that there, there, there are tremors, there are problems, there are challenges, there are disturbances beneath the surface. 
happening that you don't see. Maybe you know they're there. You know, those who are close to you, they know that they're there. You see evidence of them from time to time. You can detect them, but to, to, to the watching world, if you will, you can't see it. There, there, there are tremors, there are, there are quakes, there are disturbances, there, there are problems brewing beneath the surface, but it's not until the volcanic eruption, if you will, that you see all that's been transpiring. I'm really excited to launch a new teaching series today called Here Comes the Dreamer because we're gonna look at a family that was absolutely revered and is revered and appreciated and cherished by those of us who know and love God and who worship King Jesus. A family that is like a primo family when you look back at Israel's history. I mean, I'm talking about a foundational family that starts with Abraham and then goes to Isaac and then to Jacob. You ever heard of those guys? <laughs> I mean, I'm talking about the primo foundational family in Israel that from a distance looked like they had it all together. I mean, after all, the nation of Israel is founded by them and, and we still cherish them today and appreciate them today for how God worked and moved through that family and how, how we, even as Christ followers today, here in 2021, are referred to as children of Abraham, children of faith. But you know what's crazy when you look back at Abraham's family? What's crazy when you look, you look at Isaac's family? You know what's crazy when you look at Jacob's family? There were a lot of tremors beneath the surface. There were a lot of quakes, a lot of disturbances, quite a bit of dysfunction. And there are key points in their lives when an eruption happened. There were key points in their lives when you see the evidence of all of the quakes and all the disturbances and all of the dysfunction. You know, for many years, you couldn't see it. You know, many people today, as they come, they look back at human history, you don't see it. You just, you just hear, yes, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, what incredible men of the faith. But, but, but I want us to take a little deeper look at some things that were happening beneath the surface that resulted in a catastrophic event. The catastrophic event that we're most acutely going to study over the next couple of weeks pertains to one of Jacob's sons named Joseph. We, we pick up his story in the book of Genesis. If you have a copy of God's word, I'd love for you to turn me right now to the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. Go to chapter 37. Those of you watching us online today, right there where you are, just, just go to uh, your Bible app or pick up a copy of God's word. Go with me to Genesis chapter 37. Today. As we look at this dysfunctional family and we see, we're gonna see some volcanic eruptions that happen that still reverberate into even today's culture. Because here's, here's, here's what's happening. You've got, you've got Abraham who, who has a long awaited promised son named Isaac, right? Isaac has, has two sons uh, of the promise. You have Esau and Jacob. And, and if you remember, Isaac favored his son Esau, but, but Jacob was favored by his mother. And Jacob, early in life, located his identity in his mother's love. 
And his mother conspired with him to steal his older brother's blessing so that the family line and the family blessing would, would eventually run through Jacob in terms of the messianic line that we know of today. And, and it would come through Jacob and not the firstborn Esau. And Esau's so furious that he's gonna kill his brother, Jacob. Dysfunction. Jacob then flees and he goes off to another place and, and, and he encounters another woman who becomes the object of his affection. We're gonna see a transfer of his identity from his relationship with his mother to his relationship with his soon to be or not so soon to be bride named Rachel. Because he meets Rachel and she's beautiful. She's lovely. She's like the most gorgeous woman in town. And Jacob is so struck by her that, that he goes to, to her father and says, I wanna marry her. And he says, well, sure, you can marry her. But I'll tell you what, um, you're gonna have to work for me seven years, then I'll give her to you. I don't know why that was an arrangement, but I'm actually considering that with my girls. <laughs> Little manual labor on behalf of the suitor. That sounds like a pretty good deal to me. How about you, dads? You with me on that? Yeah, you work for me seven years, clown, and then we'll see what you got. You know what I mean? And so Jacob is so enamored with Rachel. He's like, I'm all in. And so he works seven years. You know what the Bible says? He was so enraptured with Rachel that those seven years just seemed like a day. Now that's good stuff, fellas. Y'all be using next week on Valentine's Day. <laughs> Baby, I love you so much. All these years we've been together, it just, it doesn't seem like, seven years, doesn't seem like 14 years, doesn't seem like 20 years, doesn't seem like 40 years. It just seems like a day. You're not gonna get any credit for it now because I already told you. <laughs> That's how much Jacob loved Rachel. And so um, seven years go by, they get to their wedding night. Rachel's father comes in and presents the bride so that they can Jacob and, and his bride can consummate their marriage and they do and Jacob wakes up in the morning and he realizes, whoops, it's Leah. I have no idea how that kind of thing happens. But it happened, Jacob's furious. Goes to his father-in-law and says, excuse me, <laughs> you gave me the wrong lady. <laughs> She gave me the wrong daughter. I'm sure it was an honest mistake. <laughs> no, it wasn't an honest mistake. No, 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 no. He says, well, you know what? In my culture, it's uh, kind of taboo to, 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 to marry the youngest daughter before the oldest daughter. And so I went ahead and gave you the oldest daughter. <laughs> i tell you what, you work seven more years for me. And, uh, and I'll, I'll give you Rachel. Now that I'm not considering doing with my daughters. <laughs> and he says, I'll do it. I mean, what, what, what choice do I have at this point? And so here's what happens. So he, Jacob's father ends up giving him Rachel faster than seven years. He's got to work the seven additional years, but now he's, now he's got two wives, which is already a dysfunctional mess. Okay, if any of you are considering that, let me just discourage you, okay? <laughs> like that ain't right. And, and so now he's got Leah and he's got Rachel and, and, and they each have a servant. And so here's what happens. Leah starts having some sons with Jacob, but he really loves Rachel. He doesn't love Leah, he loves Rachel. 
And, and they get to a point where Rachel's like so devastated that she can't have a son that she, she gives Jacob her servant. And so now he's having sons with her servant. And then Leah gets to a point where she's not having any more sons. And so she gives Jacob her servant. And so now he's having sons with Leah and Rachel's servant. And now Leah's servant, but no sons with Rachel, who he really loves. Are you following all that? If you're not, let me just tell you, this is messed up. Can we all agree it's messed up? Okay, none of us set out and say to our boys, okay, here's a little path you wanna follow. Marry the wrong sister and then work to marry the right sister and then have kids with them. But if they can't have, then they'll probably have some servant, you know, and then just go that route. I mean, this is like, this is messed up stuff. So finally, finally, Later in life, the Lord blesses Rachel, and guess what? Jacob and Rachel have a son, a firstborn son to Rachel. Not Jacob's firstborn son, but the firstborn son with Rachel, and his name was Joseph. Then they have a second son named Benjamin, but tragically, while giving birth to Benjamin, Rachel dies. So now you've got Jacob, that, that, yeah, that Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this, this family that we look at, oh my goodness, the founding family of Israel and the ones through whom the Messianic line has come and from a distance, this beautiful family, this amazing faith family. And, and you start digging a little bit deeper and you see, yeah, that Jacob is messed up. He's got an identity problem where it's, his identity early in life is tied to his relationship with his mother, his father loved his older brother more than him. It's messed up. That identity is transferred to Rachel and he's got this disaster with Leah and now the servants and all these kids and it's messed up. And he finally has these kids with Rachel, these two sons, and she dies while giving birth to the second. And so now Jacob's got all these sons with different women, now four different women, but, but he's got two sons that matter most to him. And we're gonna see the transfer of identity from his mother to Rachel, now to Rachel's sons, because those are the sons we're gonna see that he favors because that was the woman that he loved. And that's where we pick up the story in Genesis 37, verse two. Now, now, now check out what happens. We're gonna see, guess what we're gonna see? We're gonna see where all these earthquakes and all these fault lines that are messed up in, in Jacob's family. Guess what? We're gonna see, we're about to see a volcanic eruption. Are you ready for it? We're about to see where all of these tremors, now all this dysfunction beneath the surface that maybe some of you missed. We're gonna see where now it's all moving to a huge volcanic eruption. Here's what happened. Look at verse two, Genesis 37. Now, this is the account of Jacob and his family. When Joseph was 17 years old, he often tended his father's flocks and he worked for his half brothers, the sons of his father's wives, Bilhah and Zilpah. Those were the two servants we mentioned. But Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. So he was a tattletale. Typical younger sibling. Yeah, those of you who are the younger siblings, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Those of you who are the youngest, I don't even wanna to talk to you. 
Nah, you know what it means to get the olders into trouble. You get to snuggle up to mom or dad and tell on your older siblings, and that makes you the hero. Notice that's, that's Joseph came here, 17 years old now. He's hanging out with his brothers, and he's going, he's reporting to his father all the time. Now, check, check out verse three. Check this out. Again, knowing the history now, look at the profound truth here. Verse three, and Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. And so one day Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. Now look at this next verse and we're gonna go back to the robe. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. And they couldn't say a kind word to him. Now, does that sound to you like a model family? It doesn't sound that way to me. This, th- this thing's messed up. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yeah, let's dig beneath the surface and let's, let's look at these fault lines. Look, look at what's happening here. Jacob now has located his identity in the sons born to him by his, by his favored wife who's now gone to be with the Lord. And the firstborn of those two boys gets, of course, the ultimate favoring because he was the firstborn. He's not the firstborn in the family. He's the firstborn with the wife that he loved. And so he favored, Jacob did, Joseph. Favored him, spoiled him. All the other brothers knew, the older brothers, they all knew about it. I mean, it was obvious. And in this hierarchical society where the firstborn, firstborn, firstborn had the majority of the inheritance and the family honor, and then it just proceeded down from there, all of these other brothers are no doubt deeply offended that this younger brother is getting the favoring and the spoiling. To the extent that Jacob gave Joseph some translate a coat of like many colors, um, a, a robe or a coat lavishly furnished. The original language there, it's kind of hard to, 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 to nail down, but it's, it's some type of garment that had significant value. In fact, I don't know if you saw this recently, but archeologists actually uncovered what they believe to be this favored garment that Jacob gave to Joseph. I brought a picture of it with me today. If you didn't see that article, what what did Jacob give to Joseph that was so special? Let me show you a picture of it here right now. You'll see, you'll see that nobody else got that. Gave him a jersey of the goat, right? It's gonna be 139 to nothing tonight. Let's go. Woo! It's gonna be awesome, right? We don't know what the garment was, a robe, a coat, colors, whatever else. Listen, but but here's what we know. It, It was like Jacob went down to the Louis Vuitton store at the International Mall, stood in line, y'all with me? I mean, Whatever it was, here's what the original language communicates. It was expensive. It was like elaborate. I mean, it was, it was a really big deal, okay? This wasn't like some, um, you know, like hand-me-down. The, the point is, Jacob is showing, we see the favoritism. Joseph's a little tattletale. We see here he's lavishing, not just gifts, but his love and favoritism on Joseph. And, 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 and there's so much tension beneath the surface. That the, that the brothers won't even speak 
to Joseph. What does the scripture say? They hate him. Now I want you to make note of that because we're gonna see two additional times here briefly where it tells us that the brothers hate Joseph. Now I, I, I get not getting along with your siblings from time to time. They hated Joseph to the point they will not speak to him. Everybody tracking with me? They hate him. The dysfunction now, it's, it's beginning to boil. These tremors are getting more and more powerful. And so look at what happens next. We're about to see the eruption. Let's, let's, let's move through here pretty quickly. Check this out. So one night, verse five. So one night Joseph had a dream and when he told his brothers about it, they hated him more than ever. There it is again. Listen to this dream, he said. We were out in the field tying up bundles of grain and suddenly my bundle stood up and your bundles all gathered around and they bowed low before mine. <laughs> because my bundles of grain are the best bundles of grain and your bundles of grain are loser bundles of grain and y'all have your bundles of grain bowing to my bundles of grain. And apparently having bundles of grain was a really big deal back then, all right? So his brothers responded, so you think that you will be our king, do you? You actually think you're gonna reign over us? Guess what? They hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way that he talked about them. I think Joseph would have been wise to have listened to a recent sermon series called Words Matter. What do y'all think? <laughs> it, was, it wasn't just like his eagerness to share these dreams, like it's the way he's sharing it. Typical younger sibling stuff again, all you younger siblings, right? I mean, he's, he's, he's gloating here. I'm gonna prove that to you here in a second. Check this out. So, so, so soon, look at verse nine. So soon Joseph had another dream. And again, he told his brothers about it. Listen, I've had another dream. Oh, I bet they can't wait to hear this one. The sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed low before me. And this time he told the dream to his father as well and to all of his brothers, but his father scolded him. What kind of dream is that, he asked. Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow to the ground before you? But while his brothers were jealous of Joseph, his father wondered what these dreams meant. He, here's how bratty Joseph was in the sharing of his dreams. Even Jacob scolded him. That word scold there is a very, very, very strong word in the original language. So the dreams as we will see are legitimate, but the way Joseph went about communicating them was not. I mean, even his father had to scold him, harshly rebuke him because of these, because of the way these dreams were communicated. And, and we see three times in the narrative that his brothers absolutely hate him. Do you see the tremors here? You feel that, the small earthquakes happening beneath the surface here. They're getting more and more profound as the years pass. It starts with the favoritism and the, and, and the agitation. It builds toward the bestowing of this coat or this robe and it's boiling over into hatred. And now we've got the dreams and Joseph kind of rubbing everybody's noses in them. And um, man, they just flat out hate the guy. They just hate him. Hey, there's, a, there's, there's just a, a couple of truths here I wanna, I wanna highlight. First, let me give you one here. Uh, can I just remind you that sin always leads to dysfunction? Sin always leads 
to dysfunction. And you know what's scary about the dysfunction of our sin? Sometimes the catastrophic consequences for the sin in our lives doesn't, doesn't manifest itself. They don't manifest themselves until there's some type of volcanic eruption. But make no mistake about it. Sin always leads to dysfunction. The sin in Jacob's life going all the way back to his, his marriages and his relations with these women and the sons and now the favoring of Joseph, all these things that had been brewing in his own heart and the way, he, the way he now he's favoring Joseph and conducting himself and leading his family. And now what Joseph's done with his arrogance, his youthful arrogance of being so favored and spoiled by his father, man, this, this dysfunction's perpetuating itself and make no mistake about it, it's going to erupt. And that's how sin works for every single one of us. You know, there might be seasons we get away with it, seasons that we feel like no one knows or sees, seasons where we feel like we've got it under control, but make no mistake about it, sin's presence in your life and mine is not there to make us feel better, it's there to destroy us. And the dysfunction of sin always manifests itself in due time. And, and let me show you now how it, how, how it manifests itself in Joseph, all right, let's, let's pick it up in verse 12. So soon after this, Joseph's brothers went to pasture their father's flocks at Shechem. And when they had been gone for some time, Jacob said to Joseph, your brothers are pa pasturing the sheep at Shechem. So get ready and I'll, I'll send you to them. He says, oh, well, I'm ready to go. And she so go and, and see how your brothers and the flocks are getting along and, so, and then come back and bring me a report. And so Jacob sent him on his way and Joseph traveled to Shechem from their home in the Valley of Hebron. And when he arrived there, a man from the area noticed him wandering around the countryside. He's like, well, what are you looking for? And he says, well, I'm looking for my brothers. Do you know where they're pasturing their sheep? And he said, yeah, they moved on from here. They were here and they're no longer here. But I, I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. And so Joseph followed his brothers to Dothan and found him there. Another word for Dothan is podunk. <laughs> all right, Dothan is in the middle of nowhere, all right? All right, in the middle of nowhere. Check this out. When Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in a distance. And so he approached and they made plans to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they say. I love that. Something that I would say in that situation. How about you? Spoiled brat, not even out here working. Daddy sent him to us just to check up on us and send a word back to see how we doing. Here comes the dreamer. And they said, come and let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. We can tell our father a wild animal has eaten him. And then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben, who was the oldest, heard their scheme, he came to Joseph's rescue. Let's not kill him, he said. Why should we shed any blood? Let's just throw him into this empty cistern here in the wilderness, and then he'll die without our laying a hand on him. And Reuben was secretly planning to rescue Joseph and return him to his father. At least someone had a little common sense. And so when Joseph arrived, his brothers ripped off the beautiful robe that he was wearing and they grabbed him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty and there was no water in it. And just then, as they were sitting down to eat, they looked up and saw a caravan of camels in the distance coming toward them. It was a group of Ishmaelite traders taking a load of gum, balm, and, and uh, aromatic resin from Gilead down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain by killing our brother? 
we'd have to cover up the crime. Instead of hurting him, let's sell him to these Ishmaelite traders. After all, he is our brother, own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. And so when the Ishmaelites who were Midianite traders came by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and sold him for 20 pieces of silver. And the traders took him to Egypt. We officially have a volcanic eruption. These brothers are about to kill Joseph. One of them speaks up, as you saw, and was like, hey, let's, let's not shed the blood of a sibling here. There's no, there's no need for us to be guilty of a crime like this and have to try to cover it up. Hey, let's toss him in this cistern and we'll just let him die on his own. We, and we can leave and not know what happens to him. And then they say, that's good. They toss him in there. They strip his robe off him. By the way, that word to strip there is the same word that's used in the Old Testament for skinning an animal. You think they graciously asked him to take his coat off? Now they roughed him up a little bit and they throw him in this cistern and they sit down to eat. And while they're eating, they notice this group of camels coming with traders on it. And they say, well, I'll tell you what, we could make a few dollars on this guy. And so they sell him now as a slave. He's gone from a favored son to a slave. And they take him to Egypt. We later learn, if you, if you fast forward, that when Joseph was cast into this cistern and left for dead, he began screaming and crying out, asking for his brothers to spare him. This is a horrific situation. The dysfunction has now spilt over into a volcanic eruption. They have sold their brother as a slave and he is being taken to Egypt, the evil Empire And Joseph was crying out the entire time, don't do this. I'm begging you, spare me, save, do not do this to me. And they sat there and listened to his cries and they listened to his pleas and they did nothing about it. And you can imagine now Joseph's plight of being there, a favored son and now a destitute slave. And, and, you, and, and you just think about the horror of this. And, and if you're Joseph now, it, it feels like, very much so, it feels like your life is spinning out of control. We see here that sin's dysfunction, not just in the brother's lives, in Jacob's life, it's now manifests itself in a volcanic eruption because sin always leads to dysfunction. But, 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 but can I show you now a developing theme, a theme that we're gonna see here in future weeks that, that in the midst of this, you know, sometimes maybe when you and I feel like we're in the cistern, sin's dysfunction can mask God's purposes. Now, this is where the story, I believe, is so applicable to our situation. If you haven't noticed, man, we've, we've been living in a world this past year with a whole lot of tremors. I mean, I think I've said this about every week now for the past 40 weeks. I'm kind of just done with the pandemic. How about you? <laughs> okay, we've had it. All right. I got the stamp on my passport, <laughs> got the bumper sticker. Can we just move on? Those of you who are teachers and educators, I salute you. Those of you who are frontline medical workers, I salute you. You've, you've been amazing. You've been amazing. 
Those of you who are parenting young children and you're balancing online education within home and, and uh, to school some, and I've, I, I, I hear a lot of friends across the country in different school systems, they call it a hybrid approach. Well, that sounds like a really nice word for this is crazy and I want out of it. <laughs> hybrid approach. I salute parents today of young children. Goodness gracious. Maybe if you were uh, Rip Van Winkle and you were sleeping for the past couple months, we had a pretty rough election cycle. Kind of divisive. A lot of things up in the air. A lot of things still being questioned. A lot of policies being overturned. Who, who in the world knows what this upcoming year holds? It's, it's, it's been a rough year. Some of us might feel like we're in a cistern right now. Some of us are like experiencing a little bit of sin's dysfunction more than normal. Maybe with job changes or job reductions, stuff with your kids and school and work and all, it's crazy. You might feel like you're in a cistern right now and you might feel like the dysfunction of our world and the brokenness of our world, maybe some dysfunction in your family that surfaced because of the pressure points of the past year and the, and the frustration and the fatigue. Maybe you feel like, okay, this is boiling over now into some type of an eruption or you're close to an eruption and you feel like you're in this cistern and, you, and you're calling out like Joseph was calling out, okay, God, where are you in all? All of this. Okay, God, when's enough enough? God, what in the world are you doing? What is next for our country? Why are we on this trajectory? I mean, we have questions and we don't have answers to the questions and we feel like we're in a cistern. I just want to remind us that sin's dysfunction at times can mask God's purposes. But here's the thing, God is working in this dysfunction to bring about an incredible storyline of redemption that nobody is keenly aware of yet. May I say it this way? God's silence is not his absence. His silence is not his absence. You see, let me give you a final takeaway today. God's purposes are often hidden to us, but they are certain to happen. And God has a purpose for you and God has a purpose for me and God has a purpose for us and God has a purpose for America and God has a purpose for our world and all the nations of the world moving together toward a redemptive end that he is in complete control over. It just doesn't always seem like it. it. Doesn't always look like it. But there is a plan. Let me fast forward here to give, me, give you one verse at the very end of Genesis 37 that'll set us up for next week. N notice what happens here. Meanwhile, these Midianite traders arrived in Egypt where they sold Joseph to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Potiphar was the captain of the palace guard. You see what's happening here for a person that doesn't know God, would be, it would be categorized as coincidence. It just so happens that, 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 that Joseph gets to Dothan, not Shechem. It just so happens that his brothers decide not to kill him, 
but to throw him in a cistern. It just so happens after they spare him and cast him into the cistern, it just so happens that some traders come by and it just so happens they sell Joseph to the traders and it, who were on their way to Egypt. And it just so happens when they get to Egypt that, that he sold to Potiphar. Who's the prime minister of Egypt? And right now, if you just stop here in this story, it seems like, man, everything is spiraling out of control. We, we have questions with no answers. We, we have a favored son who's gone now to be a, a destitute servant, but yet just make a note of this, God is working. Yes, sin always leads to dysfunction. And, and, and there are times in the middle of that dysfunction when it, it masks God's purposes. We can't see it clearly, but make no mistake about it. Listen to me. God's purposes, even when they're hidden to us, are still certain to happen. He's still in complete control over your life and mine. And, and what we think are coincidences are not coincidences at all. They are strategic aspects of God's providence. Let me show you what Psalm 105 says here. When God called for a famine on the land of Canaan, cutting off its food supply, he sent someone to Egypt ahead of Israel, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. How did God send Joseph to Egypt? Telegram? No. You know what God did? He navigated the dysfunction of Jacob and Joseph's family to get Joseph exactly where God needed him to be. Can I give you a, a, a life-changing truth? God doesn't create evil. He doesn't create evil, but he manages it and he orchestrates it so that evil at the end of the day ends up destroying itself. We see here that suffering leads to salvation and yes, even death gets us to resurrection through the power of our great God. And I want you to remember today that your God's redeeming love is compatible with terrible circumstances. Your God's redeeming love is compatible with trial and difficulty and injustice. God is still on his throne. He is still moving and working. He is still bringing his plans and his purposes to pass. His silence is not his absence. He is working even in the dysfunction of our lives and the dysfunction of our world. We need only to trust him. When we feel like we're in the cistern crying out and no one hears us, when we feel like we don't have answers to questions, when we are fatigued and weary and just fed up with it all, we need to remember our great God is on his throne and he is working toward an end that gets us to glory. Because you, you, know, you know who Joseph's ultimately pointing us to? He's pointing us to one who came and was betrayed by his brothers, who was sold for pieces of silver, betrayed by those closest to him, who was stripped naked and abandoned to die, and who cried out in the garden for no one to answer him. Does that remind you of anyone? It's Jesus. And Jesus fell into a much deeper pit with an infinitely deeper anguish because he came voluntarily to be stripped of his father's love on the cross because he was willing to fill in for you and for me. 
And Jesus came and he, he secured salvation for all who believe. He came and he suffered. He came once a favored son and he, and he came and he lived a, a, as a servant by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that now all who look to Jesus will live, will have meaning and purpose in our lives and will be covered by his grace, his peace, and his righteousness. So can I encourage you, wherever you are today, whatever your outlook on life, whatever your outlook on our country and its trajectory, whatever your outlook on this pandemic, whatever your outlook on your work, whatever your outlook, however you're struggling, frustrated, weary, tired of it all, listen today, look to Jesus and what he has done for you because he has secured you and he is working in and through your life when you can see it and when you can't to accomplish a greater purpose that will benefit you and bring glory to him. And to get to Jesus today, you know what you need to do? You just need to put on the right coat. <laughs> Not a coat of human favoritism or human righteousness. You need to clothe yourself with the love and the righteousness of Jesus and he will save you, he will change you. He, he will fill you with the power of his Holy Spirit today. If you're here today and you've never asked Jesus into your heart, into your life, you've never looked to him today to, to make sense of, of your life and your circumstances, listen, today let me urge you just to turn from your sin, from your dysfunction and ask Jesus to come into your heart and your life and he will. Watching us online today, you can do that right where you are, right where you're watching us from. We wanna invite all of you today, if you've never asked Jesus into your life, to ask him today to save you, to change you and he will. Because Jesus has come once a favored son to be a suffering servant so that you and I can have forgiveness, grace, and peace and an ultimate purpose for living. If you're a Christ follower already, I wanna encourage you today to move forward this week in faith. We're gonna see in these next few weeks, I hope you'll keep tracking with us, how God works strategically through his providential plans to accomplish things that we don't always see in the moment, but yet God's working. And so let's trust him and let's serve him. And let's make much of him, even in these difficult days.